Welcome to Habitual Excellence, presented by Value Capture. This podcast in our firm is all about helping you and your organization achieve habitual excellence via one unifying focus, one value-based structure, and one performance system. In other words, it's about helping you capture dramatically more value through achieving perfect care and perfect safety for patients and staff. To learn more about Value Capture and our services, visit www.valuecapturellc.com. Hi, welcome to Habitual Excellence. I'm Mark Raven. We're joined today, we have two guests joining us from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, or IHI, as they're often referred to. Um, we're joined by Kedar Mate. He is the president and CEO. And we're also joined by Patricia McGaffigan, vice president of safety programs. Uh, how are you? Good. Thank Doing you. Great. Yeah, well, thanks. Thanks for joining us. Before we get started, um, you know, Patricia, if you can first introduce yourself and, and tell the audience about your professional background and uh, your role at IHI. Sure, Mark. And thanks for having us on today. As you noted, I serve as the Vice President of Safety Programs at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, and I've been at IHI since our merger with the National Patient Safety Foundation, where I previously worked three years ago. Uh, at the National Patient Safety Foundation, I had been there involved in uh, many years of work on advancing safety and it's kind of created an opportunity for us to be where we are today, talking with you with our combined efforts on safety. As I look back at my career, some of the things that stand out as being pretty notable are the diversity of the things that I've done as a nurse, both in clinical practice and academic settings, um, and working in a variety of roles in startup and established medical device companies. But the common thread that I've had across all of this, Mark, has been my focus on safety and my passion for safety. So I would say that that's the common denominator that brings me to where I am today. And the most happy places that I find myself in in this work on safety include things like meaningful engagement of patients and families, uh, safety of the healthcare workforce, initiatives that are more transformational in safety and some which we might talk about today, including our think tank and our national action plan for patient safety and safety as a driver of value. That's great. So that's going to be one of our main themes for the conversation here, of course, um, today, um, not just patient safety. And as we'll get into later, um, connections to uh, provider safety or employee safety or whatever ways we might describe that. So thank you, Patricia, and thank you again for being here. Um, Kedar, if you could do the same, if you could tell us um, about your background and um, for listeners um, who don't know about IHI, you know, kind of maybe talk a little bit about the history and mission of the organization as well. Well, let me add my thank you to you, uh, Mark, and to your audience for joining us uh, here. We're, uh, it's a thrill to be on this program with you, and uh, I'm glad to be joined by my colleague and, and friend Patricia as well. Um, in this uh, in this time together, so uh, so a bit about me. I'm a I'm a physician. I'm an internist. Uh, I have a faculty appointment at Weill Cornell Medical College in New York. Uh, but for the past ten years or so, I've worked at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. I've played a lot of different roles for IHI over that duration. I've I've worked a lot in global health. I've worked in our program in Africa and our helped build our uh, efforts in Asia and the Middle East. Uh, along with serving for a long time now on our R&D or what we call our innovation team, uh, where I was the chief innovation officer until 
uh, this new job, uh, which began uh, in the summer of this year, mid-pandemic, as it were. Um, so, uh, uh, so that's a bit about me. Um, I've had a long, uh, my career has been mainly in uh, health, social justice, uh, uh, quality now uh, over the last decade or so, and an emphasis, uh, as, as Patricia has noted, on patient safety and on health equity. Um, so those are kind of the themes, if I had to say, in my both in my research career and my clinical practice and now in my work as a, a, a leader and manager here at IHI. Um, IHI uh, is a, has been and ha has been around for about 30 years. It was founded in the early 90s um, and it was founded on an innovative idea. It was founded on uh, the concept that we could take uh, methods that were developed largely in manufacturing and in industrial engineering methods of quality and, and, and safety um, and translate them to healthcare settings. Um, and in the first effort uh, back in the late 80s and early 90s, uh, the National Demonstration Project uh, that Don Berwick, who was the founder of IHI, along with Glenn Gottfried and others, uh, ran a demonstration project where they where they partnered uh, 20 uh, industrial leaders with 20 health systems and they the industrial leaders who had been well steeped in quality uh, methods and quality improvement methods taught the health uh, uh, care organizations those methods. They coached them through problem-solving methods and techniques, and they applied those things to safety issues in the operating room, safety issues on in the emergency room, waiting times, uh, uh, various challenges and defects that our system still uh, suffer from today. And they found amazing impacts, you know, declines in error rates, declines in waiting times, improvements in patient experience, and so on. So much so that the IHI was born, um, in effect, as a result of that project, because other healthcare organizations wanted to learn those same methods. And ever since then, we've been applying those methods in large health systems and small communities all over the planet in 30 countries now. Mm -hmm. um, all of which is uh, seeking to improve health and healthcare uh, worldwide. We uh, we believe at IHI that health and healthcare can and must be better. Um, and we have uh, started to say there can be no quality without safety and equity. Mm -hmm. um, and we strongly believe that the improvement science and methods, and, and we do believe it to be a science uh, that continuously evolves and matures and develops, that that science can drive real meaningful uh, patient outcomes and results. Um, so it's a, again, pleasure to be with you and happy to take any other questions you might have on, on that or other areas. Yeah, well, it, it probably merits um, an entire episode and discussion on its own, the, the questions of um, equity and social justice and connections to healthcare. I think a lot of times when we think of patient safety, we often think of, let's say preventable errors, a medication error that causes harm to a specific patient. And, and But when it comes to um, equity, um, Kedar, if you could just even touch briefly, maybe just elaborate a little bit more on that, on um, the state of inequity and, and how that connects to healthcare quality and outcomes. Well, there's been, I mean, there's been numerous reports now, I, I won't belabor the kind of science and data on this, but for, in 2003, the Institute of Medicine wrote a, a report that followed two errors human crossing the quality chasm called unequal treatment, mm -hmm. in which they chronicled all of the inequities that were present in our system, many of which had existed for centuries before and have subsequently issued for the, uh, continued for the decades since. So there's plenty of data that documents the disparities and the inequities that are present in our health and healthcare and health uh, health service delivery 
and certainly in the outcomes that we all experience as a, as a society as a whole. Um, it, and the, the notion here is that it's hard to imagine a high quality or high performance or highly reliable system that systematically excludes a third of the beneficiaries or a half of the beneficiaries as we're now seeing in many environments. And today, if you look at the largest causes of excess mortality and morbidity in our healthcare environment, that's amenable to healthcare solutions, most of that is driven uh, by inequities, by black-white disparities, by rural-urban disparities, uh, and, and so on. So if we take a, and, and, and you know, the tools that we have in the quality universe of uh, improving reliable system delivery, reducing unnecessary and wasteful dis, uh, variation, those same tools could be used and deployed to resolve this unnecessary, unjust, um, inefficient source of considerable variation that we don't really need or want in our system. Um, and what we've shown now over the last uh, three or four years, when we, we, we reached this realization about five years ago at IHI that we could use the very same methods and tools and techniques that we use to improve safety, we could be using them to tackle problems of inequity. Um, and when we started to do that, first with eight health systems and now with 24 others, which we're presently doing through our Pursuing Equity Initiative, uh, we found unsurprisingly, just as we did with patient safety, that when you take a disciplined, proactive approach to the problem of unnecessary, undesirable variation, guess what? You can make it better. Um, and we're finding the same thing with the kinds of inequities that we're experiencing. To be clear, we're not solving or ending racism. Um, but that is, uh, but we are starting the process of untangling how our systems are built um, and architected in a way that produces these kinds of inequities. Um, and we are addressing along the way some of the some of the causes of the causes, as, as others have said, uh, which include uh, structured uh, racism and injustice. All right, well, thank you for for your work on all those uh, fronts. So we'll, in the show notes, make sure we have links to um, those reports. Um, that you mentioned. So uh, Patricia, turning back to you, um, can you tell us about um, what's called the National Action Plan to Advance Patient Safety, what, what that is? Sure. And let me give you a little bit of context for why we're even asking the question about the National Action Plan, Mark. About 15 years ago, uh, excuse me, about 15 years after the publication of Two Errors Human, we were curious whether or not we had really made any meaningful progress in safety. And to that end, we convened an expert panel. Uh, and that panel determined that, in fact, while we had made progress, particularly in some circumscribed areas such as hospital-acquired conditions, that overall we had not yet meaningfully moved the needle on advancing safety in the way that we needed to. And the harm rates were still deemed to be unacceptably high. We also didn't have a strategy, that national strategy that Tueras Human called for and was repeated in uh, crossing the chasm it was repeated in the recommendations of this expert panel, and that was to develop a coordinated and collaborative approach to advancing safety. So as part of the merger between the National Patient Safety Foundation and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, IHI committed to doing something about that, and we established the National Steering Committee for Patient Safety, or NSC, as we frequently refer to it. And the NSC was charged with the creation, the dissemination, and the monitoring of a national action plan that would meaningfully advance patient safety. So just about five weeks ago, and after about two years of really 
intensive collaboration between the 27 members of the National Steering Committee, we did release Safer Together, a national action plan to advance patient safety. And the National Steering Committee built the action plan around four foundational areas that were deliberately chosen because they've been deemed essential for ensuring safety across the continuum of care. No matter what project we might be working on, these four areas matter. And they include culture, leadership, and governance, patient and family engagement, learning systems, and workforce safety. Now, across those four areas, we've provided 17 recommendations uh, that relate to the four foundations. And we also developed two other resources that include a self-assessment resource, which is designed to help leaders and organizations determine where they currently are in advancing their safety work and to set goals for progress. And that's also supplemented with an implementation resource guide which details some of the tactics and supporting resources that people can use once they take that assessment tool and develop a plan for action. So we think the National Action Plan is really vital and unique because it's the first initiative of this kind in this country where we have seen this degree of coordination and collaboration of stakeholders. And it really raises the bar on what we believe are expectations around safety and pushes the envelope to focus on those four foundational areas, which have often been very overlooked as we've taken on those specific improvement projects in safety. Well, and we'll again, again, also make sure that there's a link to that Safer Together uh, publication for uh, the audience to uh, to go and, and check that out and um, take a deeper dive. And you know, I also want to explore, um, if, if you would, Patricia, some of the um, connections to uh, the late Paul O'Neill, who was um, uh, you know, a leader within um, value capture and, and more broadly um, when it comes to um, you know, leadership and culture and, and safety, as, as you were saying. Sure. I think those connect connections are incredibly deep and meaningful, Mark. Uh, Paul served on a Lucian Leap Institute, which is regarded by many as the most acclaimed think tank in patient safety, I think, in the world. And in 2012, Paul served as co-chair for our expert roundtable on workforce safety. And in fact, my very first day of work at the National Patient Safety Foundation was the day of this roundtable. Mm -hmm. And Paul literally the first person I met beyond the staff of my new organization. I will never forget that day. He kicked it off with his um, emblematic gusto and passion, and he decried the inexplicable state of workforce harm in our profession, as well as the complacency that existed with our acceptance of workforce harm as collateral damage and part of doing business that was acceptable, which was so far away from Paul's realization that theoretical limits of zero were at the place that we really needed to be. So the resulting report and recommendations that Paul led were, I believe, one of the most foundational milestones in advancing workforce safety and healthcare, and it served as the basis for so much of what we've done to date. Now, the connection here ties to workforce safety, but I really think it's so much bigger than workforce safety in and of itself, because as you just mentioned, Paul was and he embodied so much around those foundational areas that we're talking about, specifically when he looked at the things that we have to tackle to be habitually excellent. Um, they cover all four of those areas. And I can hear Paul saying right now that we have to be sure every day that we're focused on getting to habitual excellence mm -hmm. across 
the foundations. Because if we don't, no matter what we do, we're just not getting it right. And I think that's one of the sad lessons learned with our progress in safety to date, that we have not focused in on those essential areas where habitual excellence is so vital and essential. And I think Paul would probably say, unless we're doing that, we're failing in our moral duties to eliminate harm to patients and to the workforce. So all in all, when I think about the connections, I I can feel Paul and the words that he would say and the lessons that he would share that are just uh, so foundationally relevant for what we've developed with this national action plan. Yeah. Well, thank you, um, Patricia, for sharing that. And and Kato, turning back to you, what what are some, what are your some of your thoughts on on those connections between um, workforce safety and patient safety? Well, the yeah, they're absolutely go hand in hand. Uh, of course, uh, the report that uh, Patricia describes, the National Action Plan. Um, chronicles a the notion of a total systems of, of total system safety the idea that you really can't have a, a safe patient population uh, without a safe and healthy caregiving population and workforce uh, if you have an unsafe unhealthy or indeed absent workforce how can you or how could we have a safe and well cared for patient population a healthy and joyful workforce are absolutely critical to uh, more error detection and mitigation. So uh, unless we give the, the people that work in our care environments uh, the necessary respect, so it's both a physical safety as well as psychological safety, so it's both the necessary respect, support, and resources, uh, they would be more likely to not be able to follow uh, you know, safe care practices and they'll, they won't be able to work well in teams and that will lead to errors. Um, such a workforce would also be important and would be meaningful to patient engagement and to improving patient engagement. So these two things really go completely hand in hand here as, as described in the, in the report. Um, Another question might be how to, how to manage it, how to do, how to improve it, how to, how to strengthen workforce safety uh, at this time. And I think that we're experiencing the challenges today um, in the middle of this pandemic of, what happens when we threaten the workforce uh, significantly due to uh, uh, the very real uh, threat of COVID as well as the existential threat of not minding the safety of the workforce. So we have to pay attention to staff shortages, to cognitive distraction, to overload uh, use of the electronic record as well as the specific aspects of the uh, uh, helping healthcare workers protect themselves uh, from chemical infectious pathogens, et cetera. Um, in the care environment. Interventions that are available to us, we have uh, knowledge uh, now, we have uh, evidence base now around how to handle patients more safely, how to prevent slips and falls, how to avoid things like needle stick injuries, how to, how to work uh, PPE and how to acquire PPE and prevent exposures. There's nascent and building work around how to prevent violence in the work environment. Uh, there's a unfortunate uh, rise in such events as uh, we all read about in the newspapers, and there's evidence to suggest this is on the rise. So there's more evidence that's growing around how to put in a set of practices that would prevent violence from occurring in the workplace, as well as ways of building uh, psychological safety. IHI has written 
a lot on this latter point around psychological safety and on building what we call uh, joy in work and workforce resilience and well-being. Um, and uh, that may be of interest to the uh, viewers and listeners here. Uh, again, there's a theory attached to that of how to go about building that kind of workforce resilience and well-being. Well, thanks. And um, you know, Patricia, you know, speaking of um, interventions, what what are some of the actions that come from the National Action Plan? You mentioned um, recommendations and a self-assessment. Can you elaborate on uh, what what some of those um, you know kind of you know practical um, steps might be? Absolutely. So, um, first of all, the National Action Plan is really targeted at ideally healthcare executives and those who are leading safety and quality. So those are not the only audiences, but they are the primary audiences for the National Action Plan. And this is where the incredible relevance, I think, of the recommendations and the suggestions for improvement come into play. So we'd encourage people to uh, review those materials um, and to be able to discern how that can really create um, some impact in the work that folks are doing right now to advance safety. I would boil the the actions on the action plan down into three areas, uh, Mark. And the first one is really around reviewing the plan itself and the related materials to be able to identify what some of those recommendations are, and also to be able to appreciate some of the rationale for the recommendations. Secondly, the self-assessment tool is something that people can use to evaluate where they stand in each of those foundational areas and to be able to determine what their priorities are for improvement. And then the use of the implementation resource guide is something that helps people determine whether or not there could be some tactics and approaches, many of which are well-established, as Kater alluded to, and evidence-based um, that can help them advance that progress. Now, a good example, I think, of uh, what this might look like uh, could be around workforce safety. So let's say we have an organization that is fairly advanced and progressive in workforce safety. They've already hardwired many, many practices, and they are definitely on a good, a good path to eliminating harm. There are still opportunities that can exist. So one of the things that might be called into question uh, for somebody who's at a more advanced um, level of uh, workforce safety would be things like, so is workforce safety embedded not only in what you're doing right now, but in your long-term strategies, including your succession plans, because we see so much of what's going well in safety um, can sometimes be disrupted when some of those uh, leaders and others transition in their roles. So that would be one example. Another example would be whether or not you're able to identify, monitor, and address workforce harms from inequities. And this ties to what Kadar described earlier, where, um, and by the way, when we developed the National Action Plan, we developed principles for the work of the National Steering Committee. And that commitment to eliminating harm from equity was one of the most important principles that guided the work of the National Steering Committee. Another example would be how can you use um, your current state of maturation and continue to help others grow as you engage in learning networks, uh, which is an area that I know was, again, so important to Paul. And I guess I have a final thought overall on this work, and, and that is that no matter what is in the National Action Plan that relates to any of the four foundational areas or domains, 
And I, I can hear Paul telling us, like, don't just do it because it's there, but invoke the spirit of who he was from a continuous learning and improvement perspective. And Kater has talked about the criticality of that as well, and making sure that we have this habitual and collective lens and capability to advance safety. So I'm sure, again, you know, there's a, a lot that everyone can dig into. The Safer Together uh, publication, um, and we'll, we'll point people to that in the show notes. Um, so maybe one final topic here. Um, the National Forum, the IHI National Forum, um, held every uh, December is an event that I've attended a couple of times. It's, it's always very um, energizing and informative. Um, but because of uh, the pandemic, as, as most organizations are due, doing, uh, there, there are some changes this year. So Kato, if you could tell us um, what's different, what approach you're taking with the National Forum this year. Oh, sure. I'm happy to. And thank you for bringing it uh, into the conversation. I want to say that the National Action Plan and all of its and the work of the National Steering Committee will be featured in the National Forum this year. But you're right, it's different this year, as it has to be uh, in an effort to protect our workforce, as it were, because we don't want our workforce getting on planes and trains and buses and cars to try to make their way to uh, Orlando, where we typically have the National Forum. Um, a gathering of the size that we usually have is probably not advisable during the pandemic. Uh, so we're not going to do that. We're going to have this entirely virtual. We, we have uh, uh, an amazing program that we built. We have over 200 presenters that are going to be presenting in 65 sessions uh, that uh, span the, the four days of the meeting. We have 14 pre-conference workshops, and we're doing something a little different with the keynotes this year. You've probably heard from a lot of the, the usual kind of healthcare uh, leaders and, and so on in the on keynote stages and conference programs, because it's it's all very easy now to do virtually. So you've, you've heard from a lot of the usual suspects, I think, in, in various ways. So we, we decided to do something a little different um, with the keynotes this year. We invited uh, four uh, individuals to reflect on uh, what on, a, on one question, and that question is, what would be the health-creating system of the future? In other words, as we get past this pandemic, what will the health-creating system of the future look like for all of us? Um, and we invited folks who are really out of out of discipline in the tradition of an innovation kind of organization. We asked an artist, an activist, a mm -hmm. chef. Um, we asked a, uh, uh, someone who's worked in technology and urban planning and, uh, uh, and, 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 and those kinds of areas to comment on this. So we have a very interesting group, uh, a very interesting lineup of speakers. Jessica Matthews will speak to us, who's an entrepreneur and engineer um, uh, who describes herself as a, as a mix between Bill Nye, the science guy, and Beyonce, uh, who's created some really interesting and exciting innovations, will tell us what she thinks about the technology future that will contribute to uh, the health creating system of the future. Patrice Cullors, one of the founders of the Black Lives Matter movement, will talk to us about how activism will play out in the new uh, system of the future. Um, Roseanne Haggerty, uh, the CEO of Community Solutions, will speak to us about how the pandemic helped us to end homelessness in many cities around the country um, and indeed around the world, at least temporarily, and what that might create for us um, in terms of a different way forward. And Jose Andres, the, the sort of the world famous chef and humanitarian, yeah. will talk to us about his work um, uh, on, on chefing his way, if you will, to a completely different place uh, and thinking with us about what health creation would look like uh, from his point of view. 
Um, Don Berwick will be there, I'll talk to, but there'll be a lot of really interesting, I think, additional perspectives. Um, and workforce safety um, and uh, patient safety will be one of, will be two of the anchor nine tracks of the forum. So there'll be plenty of uh, content, uh, both from the National Action Plan and from others that have been working on these topics, in addition to some of the other themes that we've talked about here, about quality improvement, about equity, about addressing cost and value, about improvement science and leadership. Uh, so we would welcome you to the forum, uh, which is in the first uh, week of December, um, virtually this year. Well, that's great. And I mean, just kind of final wrap-up question. I'm, I'm, I'm the phrase health creating system jumps out and I'm sure that's very intentional. Can you just touch on briefly, I'm not asking you to give your whole um, keynote remarks, but the difference between healthcare system and health creating system, maybe if you each wanna share a quick thought um, as we wrap up. Um, yeah, I, I, so I, you're right, it's very, it's, it is a very intentional phrase. Um, you know, the idea here is that the purpose of our enterprise Ultimately, the purpose of healthcare um, is to create better health for our, our, our population, for our people, for the people that uh, we have the privilege of serving uh, in, in different ways. And so uh, if we start from the premise of how do we change healthcare, um, that's one way of starting a line of questioning. But if we, we start with a more open-ended question about what a system of health creation or health production would really look like, that may result in a quite in quite a different array or arrangement of supports and services that would enable us to produce better outcomes for people and better health uh, at scale. And so that's really the, the point of view that we're trying to understand, knowing full well that the bridge from where we are today to that future state might be a, a, a long or mighty bridge to cross. Uh, but it is at least directionally, we should know where we're headed. Uh, and that's what we're inviting our our, our speakers to, to to guide us towards. That's great. And I think that's a critical provocation for us getting to value overall. We're spending so much of our time and energies focused on fixing things versus preventing things and creating that health. And it's not just the physical health of somebody, it's the health, the whole being of individuals and communities. Um, so I'm really thrilled at the chance to have us kind of twist things around and to be able to kind of challenge uh, some of the foundations uh, that will be essential for us to be able to do so. Well, thanks. Thanks to the both of you for um, your leadership on these issues. And you know, I really want to thank you for um, sharing a little bit of that with us today and for providing, you know, I think for the audience, a lot of um, really helpful follow-ups in terms of uh, reports and on the action plan and we'll, we'll post information about all of that and the national forum, the virtual event um, in the show notes. We really hope everyone will check that out. So we've been joined again today by Kate Armate, president and CEO of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement and Patricia McGaffigan, vice president of safety programs for IHI. Thank you so much to the both of you for being here today. Thank you. And thank you to your listeners. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Habitual Excellence presented by Value Capture. We hope you'll subscribe to the podcast and please also rate and review it in your favorite podcast directory or app. To learn more about Value Capture and how we can help your organization on this journey to habitual excellence, visit our website at www.valuecapturellc.com.